Well, good morning, Eastview. What a joy to be with you today. Uh, I'm always happy uh, to see the people that I love here in central Illinois. My wife and I, uh, we're in our second long-term sojourn in Texas. She's a native, I was an import. Uh, but we lived here in central Illinois for eight years, and we, we love this place. We love your church, and it always feels like a, a reconnection of good and joyful things when I'm here. So thank you for letting me be a part of this. Uh, when, I, when I was in the airport and I showed up, uh, I actually saw on the plane from Dallas a guy that I knew from Lincoln. Hadn't seen him in the last 10 years since we moved. And I said, hey, hey, Mark, it's, it's Rob. And he, he, he sees me and he goes, oh, you uh, look different. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm growing older. <laughs> my, my hair turned white. And uh, truth be told, I'm learning that there is truth to the old, the old uh, joke that there's four stages to most men's lives. The first is when you're a little boy, you totally believe everything you've heard about Santa. When you're a young man, you change your mind a lot about what you learned. When you become a dad, you basically are Santa's little helper. And uh, when you're old, you look like Santa. <laughs> now, a couple years ago, the church that I work at said, hey, would you be Santa Claus for the kids? And I said, no. <laughs> they were like, we thought you might say that. How about cowboy Santa? I said, yes, and this is the result. Didn't, didn't see that one coming in my life. I'm just going to be honest. And here's, here's the truth. I'm okay looking like Santa. I, I am. Because kids like me more than they like you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's not true. That's not true. Uh, the, the one thing that was really, really sweet, and I'm, I'm, I grew up in the country. I'm not necessarily, you know, a super ultra sweet kind of person. But when... Uh, between one of the services when last year at Christmas, this little bitty girl with, you know, all decked out in Christmas stuff, cute as a button, she comes running up and she, she's tapping her dad and he said, yeah, go say hi. And so she said, can I give you a hug? I said, well, sure. I said, do you want me to come down to you or do you want me to pick you up? She goes, oh, pick me up. I said, okay. So I picked her up and she gave me the biggest squeeze and in my ear she whispered, she goes, oh, I love you, Santa. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so I'm not shaving. You know, whether you love Christmas or if Christmas is a tough time, it's, it's regardless of how that works, right? This is a time of year when huge amounts of the world, billions of people celebrate the birth of Jesus. You might already know this, but Christians were officially celebrating Christmas by the year 336 AD. Now, scholars still to this day argue, <laughs> about when the actual date was, but pretty much most of us have kind of figured out, look, whether it was exactly on the 25th or not, we're gonna pick that day and we're gonna celebrate that Jesus was born. In 1642, Christmas was forbidden in England as too lavish, it was too, too you know, commercialized, it was too French, <laughs> it was too much of a party. Now, clearly it was restored not long after that, but after that, it developed its own specific customs. England has uh, these little interesting things where you like pop firecrackers in your house called Christmas crackers. Mince pies, king's speech, stuff like that. In Norway, and I think this one's really interesting, 
during the Christmas season, they hide all the brooms so the witches can't ruin Christmas. <laughs> okay. In Japan, a new Christmas craze has kind of taken over that during Christmas they eat uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken as their special meal. In Venezuela, on Christmas Day, in the capital, people roller skate to church. Okay, you know, sure. In Germany, they talk about St. Nicholas, but they also talk about his evil counterpart, Krampus, as any uh, Dwight Schrute fan would know. (laughs) When my family lived in Mexico City, I loved our Christmas celebrations there. There was always pozole and tamales and uh, la posadas, all the, all the good stuff, right? And so for me, Christmas has both good memories and some hard memories. But regardless, everybody around the world at some level is understanding that the Christian world celebrates the birth of Jesus. It's this key event that the Son of God came to earth to be born as a human so that he could feel what we feel, live what we live, experience what we do. Emmanuel, God with us. Christmas is a big deal. Now, I personally have gone through those phases I mentioned earlier, where sometimes I have loved the Christmas mess. And I'm going to be honest, there have been times when I have been a bit of a Scrooge. I I admit that uh, the ups and the downs are part of my story. But even then, if you are a Scrooge right now, or if you were just one of those people that when, wherever you walk in, it feels like you just drip Christmas all over everywhere you go, Christmas is worth celebrating. It's pretty great. In 2015, Danish researchers used MRIs to track the brains of 10 people that had positive Christmas traditions and 10 people that did not. So then what happened is in the study, they would show them images of Christmas and the areas of the brain that are associated with happiness, memory, and nostalgia were lit up (laughs) like a Christmas tree. (laughs) Now, it goes on, and it's actually a pretty technical study, but here's the point. There is a, what they called a Christmas spirit network in the human brain comprising several cortical areas. This network had a significantly higher activation of people who celebrate Christmas with positive associations as opposed to those who have no Christmas traditions. Here's here's this whole idea, and I'm going to say this over and over and over again today, that Christmas is worth celebrating. Scrooges, mistakes, overspending, terrible schedules, commercialization, or specific grief notwithstanding, this season can be good. Now, our Bible text for today speaks directly to this. If you have your Bibles or your Bible app, turn with me to John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Bible scholars often use the words, this is the wrap-up to John's prologue. The very, from John chapter 1, verse 1, up to the end of verse 18, he's already talked about the logos, the light, the darkness, how God, through Jesus, created the world. And verse 14 starts pulling it all together. 
So as I began studying this text and I was thinking about y'all and the, the whole experience of being in church together, I began praying and asking the Lord to just show me things that he wanted me to think about. Part of the best thing about preaching is when you do this well, and hopefully I do this well, that the Lord speaks to you first. And that's really a, a joy. And the two things that I noticed when I was reading this text was number one, how intelligent Jesus and John really are. Because that statement, the word became flesh, is really a, a, a brilliant way to talk about thought. It's a, it's a concept, it's, a, it's an intelligence displayed here that really, quite frankly, if you get down into it in academics, is pretty deep weeds. And it's really, really brilliant. Among the most profound things ever pronounced. It's about questions about existence, the meaning of life, the nature of God, all in this short part of scripture. And it shows this, like Paul says, that Jesus is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That is amazing to me. I am always, always overwhelmed at the intelligence that just the raw brilliance of Jesus. Read that first phrase with me again. The word became flesh. John says that the logos, the word he talks about earlier in John chapter one and verse one, right? The word became with, it came with meat. That's a, it's a very interesting thing to think about. The word became meat, right? It, we call it the incarnation. And the incarnation can sound, for some people, kind of a little bit like a, a churchy word, right? You know what I'm talking about? It sounds like one of those words that, you know, you throw around that, that's churchy and Christmassy, but sometimes it's hard to understand. But I, I like the way D.A. Carson says it. He calls it the infleshing of God. Hmm. We use the word Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, while it might seem to just be either a quick statement or a incredible deep philosophical treatise, John is actually saying something very specific to the world of his day. Again, which points to the fact that not only was Jesus so intelligent, he was really rubbing off on John. I want to start with what I would consider the dominant culture of that era, which would be the Greek-speaking culture. The Greek-speaking culture was clearly, for all of the Roman Empire, the dominant worldview that everybody adopted to in some form or fashion, even if you didn't grow up with it. Now, in that culture, they only believed in two forms of life. The first was spirit, and the second was flesh. And the reality is that they were really serious about this. So pneuma, you can see, is the Greek word for spirit, and sarx is the Greek word for literally, it's just like muscles, meat, right? Everybody thought you could be one or the other. In that area, you could be either spirit. Now, you could see some of the spirits, you could talk to some of the spirits, but you were either spirit or Flesh. There were no in-betweens. In fact, a terrible heresy grew up later out of this worldview. And most people lived their lives trying to navigate between these two things. 
For example, even if you weren't a Christian, you would go perhaps to the temple, do the rituals that were required to make sure you had good crops and stuff like that. But once you were done with the rituals that appeased the spirits, you lived your life basically according to your feelings, the flesh. This was part of life kind of on the periphery, but this was real life. Of course, there was an opposite effect in that culture. There were people who were like, the real life isn't really what matters. The spiritual life is really what matters. And so they devoted their entire life to communing with, explaining to, and understanding the spiritual world. But no matter what, you couldn't be both. But John speaks to that worldview. And he says this. And this is just kind of the country boy Texas in me. Nope. That's basically what John is saying. Nope. The word, the spirit, the idea, the perfect concept of what God is became flesh. He put on meat. He was, this was, and it is a big deal. It means that even though God the Father had already revealed himself to the Jewish people, John says that now he has shown himself to the world through his son. The spirit of God encased in a real person with meat on his bones. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. God sent Jesus to the world so that we could know God the Father better. What would he do? What would he act like? When the Holy Spirit said to Moses in his commandments and the law, he was telling us all about what he's like. But when Jesus came, he demonstrated it. What a marvelous concept. He went from being God who is out there that has some rules to being God you could hug. God who would cry with you. God who needed a nap. God who feels what you and I feel. Now, here's the truth. I've been a pastor or a missionary or a professor. I've been a long time in this ministry world, and there are still a lot of people who treat Jesus the way the ancient Greek-speaking world treated the gods. There's this part of their life. There's enough spiritual information out there that we believe there might be an afterlife. Let's handle that business, but then let's live our normal lives just the, the way that we want to, right? There's also those of us, I may have been one of these at one point, who was like, man, all that real life stuff is not real at all. What's really real is the spiritual world, and they get so spiritual they're not much earthly good. Turns out, people are the same, because people are the same. See, Christmas means that God is not on one of those ends. We don't have to choose one of those ways of life. It's not just the rational arguments about the existence of God. It's not just that he's a supreme designer and original intelligence that we have to deal with over here. Nor is it this unbelievable, mystical, maybe esoteric, you know, feeling-oriented spiritual life that we have to find our way through. Between those two views... In Jesus, we have this good picture of God. He is, him being born is this turning point in this relationship that God has between us and himself. 
The idea is that we get to know what it would look like if God was one of us. What would he do? What would he say? What would he teach? How would he handle the struggles that we face? God's personality is made real life in Jesus. What a miracle. The word became flesh. It's amazing. Now, but like I said, John wasn't just talking to the Greek-speaking world when he's writing this. Listen to the second phrase of verse 14. And made his dwelling among us. In the first part of the phrase, the word became flesh. The second, John upsets, or in the first part of the phrase, John kind of upsets the apple cart of everybody who had a Greek-speaking worldview. In the second one, he really starts messing with the Jewish worldview. He makes this statement. He made his dwelling with us. So I focused a little bit at the beginning of how intelligent this verse is, how intelligent Jesus is. But the second thing I noticed when I was studying this text was how kind Jesus is. So the word became flesh. That's just just shockingly, cosmologically brilliant. But look at what he does here. This phrase, and made his dwelling with us, is the Hebrew way that you would say you set up a tent. You pitched the tabernacle. The the message says it like this, that the word became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. Jesus being born in the flesh meant that he wasn't still in some located temple in the Near East. He's saying he's pitching his tent with all of us. He came to live among us. He was present. He wasn't far away. He was engaged directly with his people. And John says that by being close with Jesus, something amazing occurred. He said that Jesus made his dwelling among us. And because of that, look at the next phrase. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. So here's what John is doing. He's connecting this idea that by Jesus coming and setting up his tent and pitching his tabernacle among us, that they who know him get to see his glory. Now he's referring to what the tabernacle held the very presence, the Shekinah glory of God. And John is saying that because Jesus was made flesh, the Shekinah glory of God was no longer held inside of the tent. It was represented and manifested in Jesus. And John said, we saw the glory of God in that guy. And look at how he describes him. Full of grace and truth. So not only does John, in this tiny little phrase, this one verse, tell everybody in the Greek-speaking world that Jesus has broken those barriers of dividing of the spirit and the flesh. And he tells the Hebrew people that not only has God done that, he has come to be among us with the Shekinah glory cased in flesh. He is the glory and presence of Yahweh. And so here, for me, I see the wisdom, the intelligence, and the goodness and the kindness of God. Now, 
you might have already grasped some of the personal implications of this. But for me, sometimes I, I, I love to study, I love to think, but sometimes it's harder to put it into real world practice. But here are the things that are important to think about. Have you ever felt like God was far away? Man, I have. Have you ever felt that he could never understand the boring, mundane things you go through? When somebody tells you you have to put the DPS cover letter on, if you're not, you're going to have to come in on Saturday, right? That kind of stuff. The, the terrible, irritating, boring stuff sometimes seems like that's way too, too mundane for God. Have you ever felt like Jesus was this good, wonderful person, but seriously, he's never going to be able to fix the political problems we have in our country? The social issues we struggle with, have you ever struggled to believe that things are going to get better when they feel so dark when you read the news? Do you ever lose hope for our country? Have you ever wondered why God allows all this? I have for sure. What about, what about you personally? Have you ever felt so caught up in sin? Don't ever believe that you're going to get free of that and have a way to do things right? Have you felt like when things didn't go your way, it's proof that God doesn't see you or maybe... Maybe he doesn't love you. Man, me too. But that's why this Christmas statement matters. That God didn't stay far away. That God didn't stay disconnected from us. He came to be with us. All of us, everybody has struggled with this. This terrible sense that maybe we really are just insignificant and unseen. John knew those feelings. That guy's political world was rotten. The Romans had taken over his land and his people, and as a fisherman, he was kind of at their whim and also at the mercies of the wind and the waves and all that stuff. John grew up hearing that God loves his people. John grew up hearing that God is with his people. But I bet he had that same, same thing. Sometimes it's hard to feel that way. But then he met Jesus. Then he met God. That looks like us. This is a guy who got tired, who had to pray, who had to rely on the Holy Spirit to do the work through him, who knew God the Father intimately and showed us how to do the same. This is the guy who can control the winds and the waves and sometimes doesn't. He's the one who didn't bat down to the despair about the government. The same guy that said, if someone follows him, if they took his way of life as their own, we would find the same kind of life and joy that he had. He promised to show us grace and truth. He was the God that was far off and now he is the God who is with us, Emmanuel. He didn't tell us that we'd miss the worst times in life. He never said he would keep us from all hardship and pain or pain. But in fact, he admits things will be tough sometimes. But this is great. He understands what we have experienced in this life because he did. And he wants to be with us as we live our lives now, dwelling with us. The incarnation is so, so significant because nothing that you and I have dealt with in this life is beyond God's understanding or feeling. And not just mental understanding. Yes, yes, sometimes hardships create good character. 
Jesus knows what it's like to make a tough choice and deal with the consequences, including when people that, they, that you love are hurt. He chose to be with us. He chose to care for us. He chose to walk with us, to be near us, to weep like we do. To be Emmanuel, God with us. Now this last part of the verse shows us that not only was Jesus real, but even more wonderful than previously thought. John says we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, catch it, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Since Jesus made his dwelling among us, the experience of meeting him in the flesh had that feeling that John and the other disciples got, like, kind of like Moses did. You might remember in Exodus 33 when Moses would go speak with God at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He was so close to God's glory that when Moses would leave, his face would shine, Right? That was what I like to call derivative glory. It was originated from God, and Moses was close to it, and and he became, had glory on him, but it was derivative of God. And Jesus is now the God that shows up, and he is full, his glory shows that he's full of grace and truth. And these are really interesting words to me. In the New Testament, the word charis, or charis, depending on how you like to say it, is the word for grace. And it's used all through the New Testament, but it's only used once in the book of John, and it's right here. This is a word, catch it, that means kindness and goodness. It's kind of like the Old Testament word hased, this idea that God is so long-suffering and kind. And the word aletheia is truth. Now, it's not very sweet. It's just really basically like, you know what? Two and two is four. Always is, always going to be. It's just the basic realities of life you can trust forever. It's why engineering works. This is what he's saying. The goodness and the loving kindness of God, all of that tenderness in his life, and the intelligence that shows us how reality functions comes in Jesus. It's what you can bank on when the going gets tough. And it's someone who has your back when things are hard. So let me recap both the intelligence and the kindness of God. First, the word became flesh. Once far away, esoteric and weird, only the prophets knew him. But now he's here and he's close. He made his dwelling with us, He set up his tabernacle in, with us. He moved into the neighborhood, decided he wants to spend his time hanging out with you and me. We have seen his glory, right? The goodness, the Shekinah glory shining in a way that we can see and touch. And that glory was full, full to the brim of grace and truth. The source of life, the best guide to the realities of life. Y'all, this is what we celebrate every year at Christmas, when Jesus comes as a baby, and of course, right, I'm willing to play Cowboy Santa. You know I'm getting in on this act, right? My scrooginess is fading. My Santa Claus era has come. <laughs> the nativity, the stories, the, the, you know, the manger, all of the, the trappings and the tinsel and the lights, 
all of it revolve around this beautiful concept that you and I get to talk about today. That the word became flesh. Christmas is when we talk about that moment that actually happened, that turning point. We find this idea, and all revolves in this concept. God loves us. He does. He wasn't willing to live without us. He's crazy about us. Now, that might be hard for you to understand, and that tracks with me. When I was a kid, uh, my mom was pretty awesome. She was about this tall, but I felt like she was like 12 feet tall sometimes, right? She was amazing. I never once in my entire life doubted that my mom loved me. But there were lots of times I didn't think she liked me very much. <laughs> you know, probably don't believe this, but uh, when I was a kid, I was sometimes unlikable. But I think a lot of people feel that way about God, Right? He is so good, he is so full of glory, and sin is so, so you know, alien to him that we know us, right? Nobody knows us better than we know ourselves and the, the terrible things we've done and thought and said, and we think to ourselves, oh, there's no way. God might love us, but he doesn't like us. But Jesus coming in the form of an infant proves that wrong. He wanted to set up shop and live in our neighborhood and show us his character. At the beginning of the message, I made this statement. Christmas is worth celebrating. It's not just worth celebrating because it's fun. It's not just the gifts. That's great. It's worth celebrating because God wisely sent his son to this earth in order to show us just how kind and wise and loving he really is. I have three things to give you as ways to celebrate this year. Number one, give worship. Now, that might sound like a weird phrase. What I mean by that is intentionally embrace what things you do in the Christmas celebration as an offering to the Lord. That's what worship is, giving him glory. So it's stuff like the tinsel and the lights, the trees, the music. It's all a version of what I like to call derivative glory. If it's beautiful or shiny or good or glowing, it's a tribute to the one who became flesh. Twinkle lights, the star on the tree, all of it. It's a visual version of the angel singing, the gifts of the magi brought to the Christ child. It's just another way to celebrate that Jesus, the one, excuse me, who became like us, came to earth with flesh, a God you could hug. All of that glory is what we call worship. Every time we worship together, we build on that. And you can do that throughout the holidays. I wish you all could meet my dad. My dad turns 91 in just a couple weeks. And years and years ago at his house, uh, he was trying to find ways to celebrate Christmas with the grandkids. So he built a 10-foot Christmas star. I got a picture of it up here somewhere. That uh, he puts on the top of his house. Now here's the problem. It's made of solid steel. So we have to use the loader to put it on the house. We had to, I'm not kidding, we had to bolt a frame that holds it because he lives in western Nebraska where the winds are crazy. And so every year when we go through this, you know, it's like a whole family affair with, you know, loaders and tools and stuff. But here's what he was telling me one time. He said, I want every grandkid and every neighbor to know that Christmas matters to me. Number one, give 
worship. Number two, extend grace. Listen, we all need grace, and we all need to give grace. When people cut you off on your way to the mall, right? <laughs> now it's getting real, Pastor. Okay. Right? When the stock person says, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have that size, right? Oh, we can't take that back. You're one day after the receipt. We got to give people grace during the holidays, right? The, giving people grace is this idea that we have enough love and they don't owe us anything. It's a good way to think about grace. They don't owe us anything, which means we are free to offer them everything. Think about ways you can do that. My wife is an amazing grace giver. I often look to her to teach me about that. And the third thing I want to say is speak truth. Nothing can shake us. We have been told what's really real. In the best of times, the worst of times, we can live out the truth, tell the truth, speak the truth in love, courage, honor, wisdom, all of that. Now, speaking the truth doesn't work very well if, you don't, if you're not full of grace. Let me do a quick recap. The word became flesh, made his dwelling with us. We have seen his glory that's full of grace and truth so that we can give worship, extend grace, and speak truth. Now, I'm not saying this is easy. I recognize in the holidays, things like this. You're three hours deep into Christmas dinner, and all of a sudden, Uncle Ernie decides to drop a political bomb, right? It can be hard to extend grace and speak truth at the same time. It's hard to see glory if... There are people in your life that are not present or don't want to be there with you. It's hard to feel grace and truth if someone you love has recently left our world. But we celebrate anyway because in spite of the hardships, the cost, the anxiety, the work, the schedule, Jesus came to show us Something like this. This is how C.S. Lewis said it. The God of the universe likes us so much that he sent his only child to be born as a human so that all humans could become his children. The year 1815 was pretty tough for most of the world. Napoleon was still causing trouble. The United States was still in the War of 1812. There was all kinds of war all over the world. And that summer, a volcano blew up in Indonesia that shot 55 million tons of ash up into the atmosphere. It was so much that the following year in 1816, people call it the year without a summer. There, was, there wasn't a summer, it was too cold. So what happened was the crops failed, which meant that the seeds for the next year failed as well. By 1817, it was getting pretty spicy. But by 1818, there was now a new stream, stream of typhus and cholera that were killing people. Hundreds of thousands of people were dying. In fact, there were riots in Germany and Austria by the year 1818. And in Christmas of 1818, there was a young priest, and he lived in this little village in Austria, and he wrote a poem about Christmas. He handed it to his friend who was a composer. They said, let's sing this tonight at our, at our Christmas service at St. Nicholas's Chapel. It was silent night. By the year 1859, it had been translated to English, and it was on, from coast to coast in worship services around the world. And today, over 300 languages have the song Silent Night. And it's been in almost every known form of music, including heavy metal. 
The shocking story is not so much that it's a beautiful song, right? All the Christmas songs we sing, beautiful songs. What's amazing about it is that those are the kind of songs, the Christmas carols, remind us that Jesus could not live with the idea that he was far away when we were far away. And so he knew we couldn't make the trip to him. That very first Christmas, Jesus humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. Everything that you and I have suffered and felt, Jesus has experienced first. Because of that, he shows us grace and truth. And in him, we get a glimpse of God's glory. Things were complicated in John's time. They were in 1818 when Silent Night was written and a bunch of the other Christmas carols. But that same message rings true then and it does to us now. God has seen us. And he says, I know you can't make it, so I'll come to you. I don't know what joys or burdens you brought with you today, but I can say with confidence that this season is worth celebrating because Jesus came so that you could know him today. And when you meet him, when Christ begins to live in you, you and I become the representation of Jesus to everybody else. Let me pray for you. God, thank you that every Christmas song we sing and everything that we do has a chance to give a reflection of glory back to you. Father in heaven, I pray for every soul and person here that you would bring a sense of blessing that Christmas is worth celebrating because it's all about how great you are. Help us give you glory. Lord, help us extend grace. Help us speak truth in the love and the mercy that you've shown us. Bless the East for you today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.